Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. good to listen to. That was a lot of truth in there. How are we doing this morning? Good. Thanks for being here. Thanks for filling up the room. Thanks for being upstairs in the overflow. Thanks for being online. We're getting together. You can pray this week. Uh, it seems like uh, this will be the week that we, uh, the final, 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 final inspections will be done this week, we think. And, uh, so, that's a milestone, isn't it? We could legitimately be occupying this building next week. <laughs> Thankfully, we're not online or anything, so it's okay. <laughs> we started about a year ago thinking about this phrase, none of us can do great things, but all of us can do small things with great love, and together we can do something wonderful. And this year has been a demonstration of that reality of what happens when people come together and people do their part and they are sacrificial and they get involved. And I know buildings are tools that are necessary and important and this is very important for the life and the future of this congregation, but I think God is interested in a whole lot more than buildings, don't you? And when you accomplish something like this, and there's a convicting part of it where you go, wonder what else he wants us to do. Wonder how else he might want us to get involved and change the world. And last week we're, we're talking and worshiping in this season around this letter that Paul wrote to the area around Ephesus. And he didn't have any other motivation in writing except to talk about the community of faith. He's not responding to issues in the local church. He's, he's written a circular letter kind of to the whole area to talk about what it means to be this community that comes together and represents Jesus Christ and, and all the possibilities. And he starts by interrupting his normal way of writing. Instead of immediately jumping into a prayer for the congregation, he writes a hymn. He does a song at the beginning. And we talked last week about he wants us to dance. He wants us to dance. He wants the church of Jesus Christ to celebrate, to be a, a joyous, kind of infectious, celebratory you know, it just, the, the, the gospel got in us and we can't be still. Amen? I want that to be the nature of the church. That when you walk in, there's a warmth to it, a community to it, a love to it. And he wants it to be such that it feels like music. It, it, it feels like dancing. And then after the hymn, now he moves into the prayer. And what do you think he's going to pray about in the prayer? He's going to, in essence, say this. I not only want you to dance, I want you to work. <laughs> I don't just want to walk in and see everybody dancing. <laughs> I mean, that's great. Dance. By all means, dance. You shouldn't make... Did, did I say that too, Texan? Dance. By all means, dance. <laughs> did you guys all hear that? I heard it right at the end there. I was like, oh, dance. We dancing now. Uh, you know... In Texas, we can make words rhyme. You ever notice, you know? Take all the money in the bank. I think I'll just stay here and drink. It's Merle Haggard, just so you know, I didn't make that up. That's a real song. 
sad that I know that. <laughs> I don't just want you to dance. I want you to work. I, I, I do not want you to become a bunch of religious people doing religious things who have become indifferent to the pain of the world. Okay. I do not want you to become religious people doing religious things who have become indifferent to the pain of the people around you. Okay, that was better. You left me hanging there for a second. Jesus gives us the story of the Good Samaritan. I think it's fascinating that it's a parable. I think it's fascinating that Jesus found it necessary to make up this story and tell it. And he tells it in response to a person who says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? How do I get to heaven? Can you give me the fast track? Because I don't want to be wasting any effort. I want to just get the payoff. So tell me how to do it. And I'll do, you know, the steps and then I'll get to heaven. And Jesus says, well, you got to keep all the commandments. Oh, I've done that my whole life. I've never messed up. And then he says, well, you need to love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who's my neighbor? I don't want to be needlessly loving people. <laughs> you know, narrow it down for me. And so then in response to this question, Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among thieves. He was beaten and robbed and left for dead. Now, think about the construction of this story that Jesus is making. And along came a priest. I mean, the whole crowd would be like, oh, now it's going to get good. He's going to say some things in Latin, and it's going to be awesome. And he passed by on the far side. And along came a Levite. Now, of the priestly clan, the Levites, the, you know, the tribe of Levi, you have priests and administrators. And a Levite is an administrator in the temple function. So they both work at the church. They both work at the temple. And he also passed by on the far side. And then along came a Samaritan, and he bound up his wounds, and he put him on his own donkey, and he took him to an inn, and he said, take care of him, and I'll pay whatever it is, and when I come back, if he's incurred more costs, then I'll pay that too. Now, who was a neighbor to the man who fell among thieves? The one who showed him mercy. Then you go and do likewise. It's really easy to tell the hero of the story. I mean, the whole title of the parable is The Good Samaritan. So we know the Samaritan is the hero of the story. Most of us, we identify with the hero of the story. So we want to go be, in fact, that is the purpose of the parable. You go be like the Good Samaritan and take care of people who are hurting. Sometimes we identify with the person who's been beaten and robbed and left for dead. We all have some times like that, don't we? We wish for a good Samaritan to come along and help. Have you ever been down that road? In times in your life when you wish the phone would ring? You wish someone would reach out? You wish someone would connect? The most disturbing part, of course, of this story is the actions of the priest and the Levite. Religious people doing religious things who have become indifferent to the pain around them. And there's a warning in that. Don't be those people. Don't get so caught up in being religious that you forget to care, that you forget to get involved, that you forget to connect, that you forget to work, that you forget to engage. Don't be those people. It matters. It matters. So Paul then is trying to move this congregation towards this place 
of connection, this place of work. Dance, be joyful, celebrate the grace of God, celebrate the gifts of God, but then work. Don't just stop there. Now, he's going to pray a prayer, and in the prayer, he's going to talk about power. So today we're talking about better together by his power. And there's a reason to talk about power because Ephesus, the central part of this circular letter, by the way, this letter was originally called the letter to Laodicea, but then because Ephesus was the largest city in the area, it sort of evolved into the church, the letter to the church at Ephesus. Circular letter to the whole area. There's not a right or wrong way to say it, but Ephesus was the biggest city. In fact, in the second century, third century B.C., Ephesus was one of the largest cities, are you ready, in the world. It was one of the largest cities in the world. But war had destroyed it, completely destroyed it in the second century B.C. So by the first century, it's been largely rebuilt. Now, it is not nearly the population center that it was, but probably 300,000 or so people live in Ephesus in the first century, and it is a remarkable city. How many of you have been to Ephesus and seen the ruins at Ephesus? Okay, six of us, that's not bad. I will tell you, if you get a chance, it is easily the most spectacular Roman ruin in the world. Located today in modern-day Turkey, it is breathtakingly beautiful. And how much of it has been uncovered that you can walk the city streets. When you read the stories in Acts 19, it's so easy for you to go, this is it, this is where, you, this, is where the, this happened to Paul right here right here in this part of the city. It was a seat of power. It was a port city on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, northeastern coast of the Mediterranean. It was connected to the Mediterranean by a river, and it had been such a commercial port, this sheltered port, so important for so many centuries that it was inevitable that it became sort of a seat of power. Everything coming from the west to the east passed through Ephesus, it was sort of one of the land bridges, especially into the northern part of Asia. And then things coming from the east to the west came through the port, things that came by land to Ephesus, put out to sea to go on to the western part of the world. It was a cosmopolitan place because of that. Lots of different beliefs. It fit in with the Roman philosophy, very pluralistic. Oh, you got a different religion, bring it in, it'll be great. So Christianity had a very easy time taking root in Ephesus because it was very open to this faith. But very quickly, the folks in Ephesus realized that this Christianity was not quite like other faiths. It was kind of an exclusive thing. You were supposed to worship God and not other gods. You, you were only supposed to be devoted to the God of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it wasn't long before the people in Ephesus began to go, you know, this is not going to go well for us, particularly among the silversmiths who are in the business of making the little idols to the goddess uh, Artemis. Uh, Ephesus was a center for worship for Artemis. And so in Acts 19, we have a story where the silversmiths get together and they say, hey, we're going to have to put a stop to this because we're going to be put out of business. If this Christianity thing keeps going, it's not going to be great. And so they decide that they're going to throw a riot. And so they do. They invite some people and they throw themselves a riot, and at the center of that is Paul. And so Paul now, as he's writing back to them, he, he's reflecting on this time, this power, the way, you know, the, the powers that be in Ephesus had converged on him and made his life pretty miserable, and he'd been a victim of all of that. And so he's going to pray a prayer over them, and at the center of this seat of power, he's going to pray about another kind of 
power. So listen to what he prays. Everybody doing well? It's remarkably warm in here for a room that is lacking about two-thirds of its heat. I would think we have to say thanks to Gabby, who must have turned on the heat really, 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 really early in the supplemental heat that we have working today. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Man, it's, it's a lot. There's a lot going on here. So let's uh, dive in there. He says, I'm going to pray a few things over you because you have work to do. And I'm not only going to pray a few things over you, but I'm going to define what you need to do. And so that's my prayer for you. This is what I keep, every time I think for you, I'm really thankful. And then I pray. And number one, I pray that you would have wisdom. That's the first thing he asked for. I want you to be smart. Imagine that, smart Christians. Wow. I want you to practice an intelligence that drives itself out of maturity, that drives itself out of truth, that is willing to look very clearly at the condition of the world and the reality of the gospel and how it all fits together. I want you to be smart. I I want you to engage your intellectual abilities into the ideas that are represented in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I I want you to not be afraid that the culture around you is smarter than you. Can I get an amen? Amen. And we are a little afraid of that. We hide a little. Now, I'll admit that if you're going to invite a Christian to do an interview in any secular environment, you're not going to be looking for the smartest guy in the room. That's just true. I mean, very rarely do I see an interview with one of the people I would consider to be the intellectual giants of our current Christian movement in the world. They just generally don't interview that person. And it, it leaves the impression that you've got to be a little bit weak-minded to be a believer, to have faith. That having faith is sort of a crutch. It's for people that aren't quite all together intellectually. It's for people that quite don't have it all together emotionally. It's for people that quite, can't, can't quite cope. And Paul says, I I want you to be a people of wisdom. I want depth of character. I I I want you to reason through it. Now, there'll be a place where your reason will have to step into faith. But just so you know, there are no systems on earth where your reason will not finally give way to faith. No, I mean it. However scientifically grounded you are, at some point you will choose some things to believe in that you cannot prove. I'm, 
I'm believing in that direction. And Paul says, don't jump off early. Don't jump off over here before you reasoned it out. I want you to be prepared in season and out of season to give an explanation for the hope that lies in you. That takes intellectual work. Don't be lazy. Be filled with wisdom. Work at it. Think about it. Read the word. Read good stuff. There's smart people writing wonderful stuff in this place of faith. It's not about superstition. We're not sprinkling religious pixie dust over people. And Paul says, to this intellectual center of the world, to this power seat in the world, to this area of Asia Minor that is this hotbed of culture, he says, I'm praying that you have wisdom. Number two, I'm praying that you have revelation, that you have wisdom and revelation. Sometimes we think about this word as reveal things that we don't know. In this context, how it's used is, I want you to have wisdom... And then I want God to reveal to you the effectiveness of this wisdom in which you believe. I want God to affirm to you what you are coming to understand intellectually. I want it to happen in real life, in your soul, in your spirit, in in the relationships. I want it to be revealed in real life. I want you to have wisdom and then I want the revelation to be that Look at that. The gospel actually does what it says it does. It actually sets the captives free. It, it, it actually binds up. Who, who knew? So I'm praying. This is what I'm praying over you. I'm praying wisdom and revelation. I'm praying that you connect and that you see how it, is it reveals how it's working. And then number three, I pray that you'd have hope. I pray that you'd have hope. Not that you would have a wish for hope. Not that you would wish that this wisdom and revelation then, you wish it would work. But that you have connected to real hope. There is a legitimate hope. And there aren't very many places in the world that offer legitimate hope. How do you heal a broken heart? How do you pick up a broken life? How do you find forgiveness from shame and failure? How do you put something back together that has fallen all to pieces? The gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll make you new. I'll take the pieces that are broken and I'll, I'll put them together in a way that what comes out of that brokenness is more beautiful than what in. When in. I won't waste it, I won't waste your pain. I won't waste your suffering. I want you to have real hope. I want you to have wisdom and revelation, and I want you to feel the hope. I want you as a body of people, as the the group who are following, I I want you to have real hope. Let me pray for you. Listen, I'll tell you, I don't have the answers, but I, I can tell you what helped me put it back together. I can tell you that my hope extends far beyond the days that I walk this earth. I don't, I don't need to have every single thing be perfect today. I believe that in the course of my time on this planet and my time beyond this planet, God is working all things together for my good. And that's my hope. And Paul very specifically says, and even the grave doesn't have power over you anymore. And now he's ready for that fourth thing. Because the power 
number four, power. Because the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is at work in you. So you don't just have wisdom and you don't just have revelation and you don't just have hope, but you have power. Now don't walk around like somebody else has the power. Don't, don't walk around like, you know, it's the government that has the power. And, you know, Paul's speaking from a very personal place. They tracked me down in the city. There was a mob. Nobody stopped them. They beat me. It was not a good scene. But I just want you to know that that's just people acting out. That's not the seat of power. Everybody with me? And he's very explicit now. Is my mic turning on and off? Because I can start over. <laughs> no, no, I hear you just fine. <laughs> Got all the notes right here, please. It's on the screen. We'll catch up. He's very explicit. All powers, dominion in the age that is present. and in the, I mean, he's, he is writing it down. Could we just take a minute and say, I brought it up last week. I'm going to bring it up again. I try not to every Sunday. It's an election year. Don't lose your mind. The seat of power is not in Washington or Sacramento. I don't know any other state capitals. Austin, Texas. <laughs> You've exhausted my knowledge. <laughs> the seat of power is God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. That power that raised Christ from the dead, that's at work in you. That same power, He says. So, so don't get overwhelmed and don't get depressed. and don't, just, just have wisdom and revelation and hope and know you have power. You're not helpless. You're not disenfranchised. And now He's ready to say, why? Why does this matter? Why do we need wisdom and revelation and hope and power? Because now He says, this is what you're supposed to accomplish this is what he says. I've got to catch up. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is such a startling statement. So this is what he says. <laughs> that Jesus Christ has this power. This power was exerted in Christ to raise him from the dead. It's at work in you. And you now are the body of Christ, the church, who is doing the work to fill the world with the fullness that Christ demonstrated. Now, if you wanted to break it down, some commentators explain it, the language here in this way. Imagine that a cure has been found for an awful disease. Woohoo! Cancer, let's just solve that one. Now, how long will it take? for that discovery to disseminate into the population around the world and what will be involved in the dissemination of this cure for this dreaded disease. Well, some stuff's got to happen. Some people got to get trained. They got to work. We got to pass off the technology. We got to, you know, make the medicine. I mean, there's going to be, just because the cure has been found doesn't mean that it's not going to take some work to get it to spread everywhere so that everyone can feel the power of the cure. It's what he's saying. Jesus became the answer. In fact, if you are following the biblical theological story, the resurrection of Jesus is the end in the middle of the story. It is the end. It is the outcome accelerated into the middle of the story. So we already know the outcome. We already know 
that Christ wins and death is overcome and there's no more crying and there's no more sorrow and there's no more sickness and there's no more death, we already know this world is ending in fulfillment. Have you read Revelation 21? <laughs> Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down. This is worthy. I'm making all things new. I'm making all things new. Yeah, but it's broken. I'm making all things new. Yeah, it is broken. <laughs> I'm putting it back together. This news has to get out. This news has to be carried forward. We have to create the fullness in the world. That's what the body of Christ. Paul says, you're going to need this understanding. You're going to need wisdom. You're going to need revelation. You're going to need hope. You're going to need power because it is the task of the church of Jesus Christ to carry the fullness of God and fill up the whole earth with it. Amen? Amen. So with that piece of good news, let me ask you this question. Are we? Because the prejudice of this piece of writing is this. I want you to dance in the gospel. It is the hope. It fixes things that are broken. World broken, listen, it, the gospel of Jesus Christ fixes what is broken. How do you mend a broken heart? That's a song. How do you put things together that have been destroyed? H how do you get over loss? How do you cope with fear? How do you walk the journey of sickness? What do you do? How does it really work in the real world? I mean, doctors can work on our bodies, but, but when we're sick, when we're in crisis, we need more than just somebody working on our body. Somebody's got to minister to our mind and our spirit and our soul because we're so integrated. I'll never forget years ago undergoing treatment for cancer and, and my oncologist one day, we were talking, he's a Jewish doctor. I've told you this before. Jewish doctor at the Catholic hospital, the Protestant minister. There's no way God's getting into that situation. <laughs> and we were chatting one day and he said, well, just as an observation, as a person who does this all the time, I will say this, I find that people who pray cure better than people who don't. And of course, we, we're having a philosophical conversation. Not everybody that prays gets cured, we know that. He just said, just an observation. Who tends the soul? Who tends the soul? And the claim of the gospel is, I'm here to cure what... I have come to set the captives free. I've come to bind up the brokenhearted. I've come to see the lame walk and the blind see. I've come to be an answer to the problems of the world. Do we as Christian people believe that? Are we willing to carry it out there? I encounter this sometimes. I encounter people who say, well, I tried the church thing. And I just found it to be, you know, hypocritical. And, and I gave up. I just, I just decided it wasn't for me. And I say, I, 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 can, I can get that. If you've been around church a while, you've been hurt. You get wounded here. I don't know if you know this, but people make up the church. And I know there are probably some other human organizations that are pristine and perfect. You know, I haven't found any yet, but I'm theoretically. Because if we're giving up on this one because people are imperfect, then there must be a perfect one somewhere, right? And I always want to ask this question and try to as often as I can. Okay, so you're giving up on the church. What are you replacing it with? What's going to take its place? I mean, 
I don't necessarily mean in your personal faith. I mean in your participation in an effort to make the world a better place. What are you going to do instead? Nothing? Nothing? You're just mad, so you're not going to do anything to make the world a better place? Listen, that's not okay. <laughs> not psychologically. You know, you've you got to have a cause greater than yourself. You've got to have something bigger than yourself. You've got to live outside of yourself. If you want to find any sort of fulfillment, any kind of happiness in this journey of life, you've got to have something that matters to you that's bigger than just perpetuating your own existence. And Paul says, I've, come to I've tried other stuff, and I've come to believe that the hope of the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I dance in it, but I also relish its wisdom and it's revelation, and it's hope, and it's power, because I want to push that hope, that light, into every corner of darkness on this planet, and it'll be imperfect. But I want to be a part of something that's feeding children that are hungry. I want to be a part of something that's making a legitimate difference. I don't want to be a part of religious people doing religious things who have lost touch with the pain of the people in this world. I want to be different than that. And Paul is visioning a people who are different than that. He's saying, we got those kind of people in every kind of religion around the world who are self-absorbed, who are going to be a part of a religion because they think it makes them feel better. Don't be those people. Change the world in his name. Dance. By all means, dance. But work. Work. Do the task to which you were called. Let's pray. God, thank you. We do believe in your kingdom. We do believe in the beauty of it and the joy of it and the grace of it, that we get to dance in it and celebrate it and feel it and allow it to wash over us. And I pray that as we celebrate all the miracles of this past year, we got a ways to go. There's more to do. This project isn't done yet. But we also recognize that this project is just one project. We didn't build a building so we could all be more comfortable. We built a building from which to launch ministry, from which to launch compassion, from which to engage people who hurt. Do not allow us to be religious people doing religious things who have lost touch with the pain around us, but allow us to be people that are kingdom people, bringing to life the very best version of the kingdom of God alive on earth and not only dancing the dance, but doing the work. I pray that you would examine our hearts. Allow us to ask the question, where and in what way are you calling me to engage, to, to get connected, to, to do legitimate work, to spread this hope? Challenge us, lead us. May your will be done in this church on earth as it is in heaven, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said together, amen. amen. Will you stand as we respond to the word? Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.